Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Welcome back, LA Fems. This is Lee, and you're listening to the Fem South Podcast. We are a local book club, podcast, and community educating, supporting, and empowering women in the South. We're kind of trying to shake things up here and have some difficult conversations that, frankly, women have been seemingly afraid to have here. We're on our second year of the podcast, and I'm so excited to be bringing you the first episode of 2020. In this episode, my good friend Shannon and I discuss Christian feminism, which has been a topic that we've been wanting to do for quite some time now because many of the women that live in our area are Christian and the church is incredibly influential in the community and politics here. So we're about to dive into the topic of Christian feminism. But before we do, I want to make a quick disclaimer. We are going to be talking about religion and referring to God with a capital G in the context of the Christian religion. We recognize that Christianity is a large umbrella and not monolithic. We also recognize that spirituality is a very personal thing, and each person's spiritual path is their own, including the decision to not follow any particular religion or to believe in any higher power or mystical entity. We are a growing and evolving community. And with each episode, our goal is to expand our awareness and integrate what we're learning into our practice. We don't present one unified perspective, and instead we believe we can hold space for a multitude of perspectives. So if you're challenged by anything you hear, if you disagree, we encourage you to contact us and let us know what you think and what we might be missing in the conversation. We're all in this together. And with that, I hope you enjoy. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up her seven pillars. She has also set her table. She has sent out her women ministers to call from the highest places in the town. Come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave immaturity and live and walk in the way of wisdom. Proverbs 9 verses 1 through 3 and 5 through 6. So the reference to wisdom in the book of Proverbs and also in several other wisdom books of the Bible is based on the Greek word Sophia, which is a feminine proper noun. So properly translated, many of the wisdom texts refer to uh, feminine aspects of divinity. Little known fact. Thank you, Shannon. That leads us to our discussion about the book that we're reading this month in our book club, which is called New Feminist Christianity, Many Voices, Many Views, the collection of essays edited by Mary E. Hunt and Diana L. Nua. Noi. Noi. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that, which way to pronounce that. So um, today I have with me my good friend, Shannon, who is a part of the Fem South book club. This is her first time being a co-host on the podcast, and I'm very excited to have you with me, Shannon. I'm so glad to be here, Lee. I know we've been looking forward to this topic and this discussion for a long time. Let's start by talking about why we're talking about Christian feminism as our topic for the new year, 2020, and why we chose this particular book. So... This conversation about Christian feminism came out of a desire that I had to reconcile feminism and Christianity because we are geographically located in the Bible Belt. 
This is we're saturated in Christian culture and in a particular flavor of Christianity. And so what I've noticed is a lot of my friends who identify as feminist have had very difficult experiences with Christianity in their past and really just fairly decided to jump ship and leave Christianity and and often, you know, leave any sort of um, faith tradition. And my friends who are Christian often have a really hard time identifying with feminism because it can be used almost as a pejorative term in, in many Christian communities. There's definitely a stigma there. So my hope was to open up the discussion between and among Christianity and feminism and to show that there is a way to be Christian that can include being a feminist. And I I feel like it's really important to let feminists know, not that they need to be Christian, certainly not, that is not my goal, but that there are these streams within Christianity, and we may not see them much here, living in the Bible Belt, but they do exist, and very important work is being done and has already been done. So how about we begin with the uh, sort of, I guess, the main theme for the whole book, if there was one main theme, although there's a lot. Part of why we selected this book is because it is a variety of essays by many different um, women voices in the church uh, from a variety of perspectives. There are many from people of color, from the Latina community, from the African-American church, from the Asian churches. From, from the queer community. And so th- these essays were uh, divided into several broad topics, feminist theology, feminist scriptural insights, which is biblical translation, feminist ethical agendas, feminist liturgical frontiers, and feminist ministerial challenges, which would be um, women who are ordained in the church. So this is a tough book to summarize because Part of the beauty of it is that it does cover so many perspectives and topics, but we're going to pull out a few of our favorites and discuss those with y'all. Yeah, thank you. And I'd like to start with feminist theology and the essay that we're going to use to talk about that. Well, we have two essays that we're going to use to talk about that. The first one is Critical Feminist Biblical Studies, Remembering the Struggles, Envisioning the Future, written by Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza. And the second one is entitled, Where Are You Really From? An Asian American Feminist Biblical Scholar Reflects on Her Guild. And that one is by Gail A. Yi or Ye. Please excuse us for mispronouncing some of these names. I have not yet heard them spoken out loud. So Fiorenza says, quote, We need to engage in a feminist revision of early Christian history in the interest of liberation that presupposes a conversion, a turning around of women from self-negation to self-affirmation. But she also asked a really important question, which is, quote, do we still have enough information in androchirocentric records to enable us to tell early Christian history as a story about the equal discipleship of women and men, slaves and freeborn, Jews and barbarians? Well, This was one of my favorite essays, and I think that goes back to something that I read in the introduction to the book, which is that the nature of sin is different between men and women. So men tend to sin by using their power wrongly or abusively, and women sin by not taking themselves or other women seriously enough. And I think that's what she's getting at in this essay, which is how has the Bible been translated in a way that removes women from the center? And how can we change that? How can we reread the Bible in a way that takes the women in it seriously and puts them in in the center of the narrative? Mary Daly, who is an early Christian feminist, said that when God is male, the male is God. And so... That's why it's been so important for me as a Christian woman to go back to the source of the Bible and to the founding of the church and to its founder, Jesus, and read it for myself through a fresh lens, a lens that was not created 
by men, for men, as, as the church as an institution was created for men by men, as are most institutions that, that we live in in our society. But when you return to better biblical translations and a return to the text, you see that the divine feminine is there. Um, I know in Fem South we've talked about the return of the divine feminine so much, and so many women have left Christianity because they think there's nothing there for them, but there is. It just isn't what has been presented front and center at our churches. There are many references to feminine aspects of the divine, the Sophia, the Chochma, wisdom, the Holy Spirit is gendered as feminine in some texts and translations. Uh, metaphors for God are often in the feminine. God is the mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wing. God is the fierce mother bear that protects her cubs. And there are many stories of women in the biblical text. There's the story of Tamar. That is a great story about sexual assault. And you know what? I've never heard one sermon preached about her. There are many stories of women in the text of Hagar, of Tamar, of, of Deborah the prophetess who led the Israelites into battle. They are all there. But the problem is, for those of us Christian women who show up to to church week after week, that's not what we hear read in the lectionary. That's not what we hear our pastors preach sermons about. They preach sermons about the 12 male disciples, Paul and Moses and Abraham, The women are there. They just need to be brought out of the text and put in the center of the story, which is what Elizabeth Schlusler Fiorenza is proposing in a really beautiful way. And I love how she talks about the early Jesus movement as being a discipleship of equals, which included men and women. And we know that. We know that women founded and organized and funded Jesus's ministry. But again, that is not what has been presented to us. Yeah, I like that. And I really also like that she talks about whenever we are rereading the Bible for these women, that we have to always assume, even if it's not in the text, that the women were at the forefront of these movements, that they have been left out. And if we approach the text with that awareness, then we can start to decipher and bring women back into the forefront of the conversation. And I also like that part where she talks about the Basilia of God, or what she calls the Commonwealth of God, that Jesus was actually a part of a larger liberation movement that was designed to free people from Roman imperialism, to fight against imperialism, to fight against structures of domination. And oppression. And oppression. And so... Certainly women would have been or were at the forefront of that. So I think that that's really important to become aware of. And essentially, she's arguing that that sort of decentralizes Jesus a little bit, which allows for more women like Mary Magdalene and Jesus's mother, Mary, and other women around Jesus to come a little bit more into the forefront, right? Piggybacking on what you said, I think it's interesting for those of us who are Christian to identify that Jesus was at the forefront of a liberation movement, but the movement was not necessarily all about Jesus. It was about bringing about the commonwealth of God. Now, I like that term particularly because we often hear it referred to as the kingdom of God, but what Slusher Fiorenza is proposing is that we remove this hierarchical system from the term and instead use Commonwealth of God, which was so beautiful and such a huge shift for me, even in my own um, personal belief that Jesus was here to bring about the Commonwealth of God and that that was an equal opportunity endeavor for all of the all of his disciples, which included many women. Yeah, and I really love the attention that she pays to language. And I think that's another important part of a feminist theology is to recognize the masculine language that's embedded in a lot of the text and to see that as coming from a particular perspective serving a particular purpose, right? And that brings me to another quote from this other article that I had mentioned earlier from uh, Gail Ye. And she says, 
when we are talking about, well, let me back up. She's talking about the development of literary theory that comes out of literary criticism. And this is when the Bible starts to really be examined as, a, as literature, not just the word of God, right? During this time, power becomes the variable and the examination of literacy. Who has the power? Who has power to create and produce the text? Who has power to read and interpret the text? And she also says, quote, People approach the Bible from different places, and its interpretation depends heavily on where the reader is really from. And where someone is really from depends on complex interconnections of her or his gender, racial ethnic identity, class status, and sexual orientation, among many other factors, end quote. So I think then a part of this discussion about looking at and are trying to pull women out of the margins in, in the Bible should also include a discussion about language and how the language is used, why the language was used in the first place. It needs context. For example, when I read Genesis, I have a really difficult time with the immediate pronoun he. God is essentially being um, presented as a he. And so my immediate thought is, okay, well, who wrote, who wrote this? Why? What is the benefit of positioning God as a he? Well, clearly to oppress women. And it does the job pretty well, wouldn't you think? Or if not to oppress women, not with some sort of malicious intent, if you will. It's still coming from a privileged male perspective. And, and the term androcentric is one that gets used quite often in this book, and she uses it, which is male language. I think that the gendering of God is inevitable because human beings are gendered, um, but problematic. And I think the problem is that God has been exclusively gendered as male in most of our experiences in Christianity. And so when you read that in Genesis, first of all, I wonder what the original text actually said. That's always a great thing to go back to. And what terms were actually used? Are there alternate translations for those? That would be my first question. And my second question would be, would that bother you so much right off the bat if the remainder of the Bible alternated gendering God as male and female equally? That's a really good question. I feel like for me, it would bother me which is a part of why a lot of these conversations bother me, even though there is evidence of a feminine in the text, God is still largely referred to as male. And the supreme being is the father and not the mother, which I find very ironic considering the mother is, is essential in that mix. You can't have a father without a mother. And yet she's left out of that conversation altogether. I agree that that's really difficult, and I don't know what to say about it, except that God does not have a gender identity, and yet because we are humans and experiencing the divine through our own humanity, we apply the filter of gender to God. And I think where it becomes problematic is when we exclusively gender God, or we exclusively align God with one gender to the exclusion of the other. I think that is when it becomes problematic and when it has become a tool to oppress women and to devalue us. I think it's also important to point out that there are more subtle ways that we are affected by this than we probably realize. We are missing the feminine archetype that helps us connect with our full range of feminine experiences. And this is true for, I think, for any marginalized group. We want to see a reflection of ourselves in the things that we worship spiritually. And it's just hard to do that when a religion has left out the female archetype, with the exception perhaps maybe of you know, Mary, but even then she's been you know, deemed a virgin. And so we can't really connect with her sexually. And I think that we experience a great loss as women when we don't have this. Um. There is an understanding in Christianity that what incarnated in Jesus was the Sophia, 
which is a very interesting hybrid of masculine and feminine. So if you get into the more esoteric reaches of Christianity, there will be this idea that that was the reconciliation of the masculine and the feminine embodied. There is also the concept that the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is a feminine entity. Mm-hmm. And there is grammatical basis for that in, in the biblical translation. Okay, so you have that amazing information and knowledge. How do you get that and change the language? Now, and this is what I think we'll, we need to keep coming back to is as we talk about these concepts and these ideas, how do we integrate? How do we make these changes? Are these changes that can be made within the church? So in the essay, More Than Words, by Deborah Sokolov, she mentions that perhaps the biggest difference that feminism has made in the worship of mainstream Protestant congregations is in the area of leadership. Today, about half the students in seminaries connected with the major denominations are women. However, the attempt to change the language that we use to speak about the divine has been met with great resistance. So this is what we were talking about earlier. There are areas in which great gains have been made and areas in which great resistance yeah. has occurred. And I think the degendering of God and the decentering of power paradigms in Christianity is going to be a much much longer project. I do feel like it's a path worth walking, but it is a long, I think it will be a very long road. And that honestly is one of my biggest hangups when I, um, when I actually go uh, worship in a church is the language is very difficult for me to tolerate. All the terms you mentioned, Lord, King, which are both male and the exclusively male pronouns. So much centering of the male experience. Um, The either silence about the feminine experience or the invalidation, devaluing of the feminine experience. I really struggle with those a lot. Yes. And that is a nice segue into our conversation about intersectionality and hierarchy. I think it's safe to say that this book is intersectional. It focuses on looking at Christianity through a lot of different lenses and with a lot of different voices. And so feminist Christianity isn't just focused on how women are oppressed by patriarchy. But this new word that actually Fiorenza has coined in one of her essays, hierarchy, focuses on a much larger web of oppression. Shana, do you want to give us a definition of hierarchy for those that maybe are unfamiliar? This was a new word for me. The word that we are used to hearing is patriarchy. But this book introduced us to a new term called hierarchy. It refers to systems of oppression and domination that may be based on gender, but are also based on other um, categories of marginalization, such as sexuality, class, race. And gender. So, hierarchy is um, in many ways the same as the term intersectional feminism. It's expressing to us that systems of domination and oppression are not solely based on gender. There's many categorizations of marginalization that we can experience or extend. So, Fiorenza states that hierarchy is not a hierarchical system as it does not focus on one point of domination. Instead, it's described as a complex pyramidal system with those on the bottom of the pyramid experiencing the full power of hierarchical oppression. We chose two essays to talk about this topic. One was race, class, gender, sexuality, integrating the diverse politics of identity into our theology by W. Ann Jaw. Um, The second essay was Our Voices Loud and Clear by Eleanor Moody Shepard, who is ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA and identifies as a womanist. 
So the quote that I really like from Ann Jaw, and again, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, J-O-H. The quote that I like from her is, quote, Christian dominance is rooted in its history of imperialism and continues its trajectory in modern times as it works insidiously to racialize and genderize other religions as unruly, deviant, dark, irrational, feminine, weak, passive, etc. And then she further says a little bit down the page, quote, Christian supremacy and assumptions that Christianity is the normative religion often go unnoticed in public space and public discourse. Now that raises an interesting point that came up in book club when we discussed this book, which is that the United States was founded on the separation of church and state. That is a big part of the reason why people left England is so that religion and government would not be inextricably entwined. And yet the United States seems to have done a 180 on that. And um, now we currently see that Christianity is a religion that has in many ways been hijacked for political purposes. Um, I find that to be a travesty. Because what's interesting about Christian supremacy is that in many ways, it's the antithesis of the Jesus movement. As you pointed out earlier, Jesus was the leader of a liberation movement that was against the Roman Empire. So for the first three or four hundred years of Christianity, it was a marginalized religion. It was the religion of the oppressed. That's why you see in the early church, these small little house churches and itinerant preachers and so many martyrs because it was an oppressed religious movement because they were trying to subvert the dominant power. And then Constantine came in and decided that the empire of Rome needed a new religion and that Christianity would work just great. <laughs> so that's the point in which Christianity got subverted by empire and, and in many ways became in service to empire. That's an important point. And I think that it, you, the, the point has been made in this book that um, Christianity has been both the liberator and the oppressor throughout history. So for African-Americans, it was justification for that oppression, but at the same time, used as a means for liberation as well. So it isn't always static. And I think that's really interesting to look at where we are right now, where it is so intertwined with politics, but a politic that seems to be trying to suppress so many different aspects of our culture, of people's identity. And so I think it's really important, as Jaw is saying, that in order to really look at the future of Christianity, we have to always be including conversations about intersectionality and the different ways in which Christian supremacy affects people and groups, whether it's a force of oppression or whether it's being used as a force for liberation. And that's why I selected this essay, um, which is written by a womanist. And as a divorced single mother, I have found that many, even Christian feminists, are not really fully aware of the fact that their marriage to a white male often protects them from a lot of the othering that can occur in the Christian mainstream. Because there's this concept in Christianity, sadly, in complementarianism, of the husband being the covering for the wife. And even though, even in denominations where that is not a specifically elucidated belief, I think it is nevertheless a phenomena that if you are a married Christian woman, your experience is going to be very different in the church than of a single woman or a person of color, a queer person. And so that's why I really, I resonate a lot with the work of, of womenist theologians, because they represent a voice of people who have been both oppressed by Christianity and inspired by it. And they have, they wrestle with that. And that is something I myself wrestle with. Yeah. And so I think that when you bring an intersectional approach to theology, it allows you to see the different ways in which people may have experienced oppression and trauma within the church based on any identities that would marginalize them. So another reason why I chose this essay to focus on is because it references Audre Lorde, 
we read her for one of our previous FemSAL discussions, and you actually did a panel interview with some um, women from Fairhope. And in that interview, I remember you specifically asking them about their experience in the African-American church. That was a seed for this conversation. Yes. What's interesting about evoking Audre Lorde is it immediately makes me think of her essay and the title of her essay, which is so wonderful. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. That's the big wrestle here is how do you reconstruct using different tools? And ironically, the Christian religion is a tool of the master. And so how then do you do that? Well, in the Our Voices essay, Reverend Dr. Moody Shepherd describes three categories of women, and she's specifically referencing the African-American church, but I think these are applicable to most Christian women that I know. So she references three categories of women in the church. The first are those who have been steeped in, in a patriarchal tradition to such an extent that their minds have been colonized. And these women often, they experience these teachings as normative. They often become gatekeepers for other women, preventing other women who may want to take a fuller role in the church from doing so. Well, and that is that idea that keeps coming up over and over again in each one of these essays is that you can't just add women to the mix and stir. And sometimes women can be our worst enemies because we know here in Alabama that some of our worst recent laws have been written by women and signed by women. And Lee, I think you're, you're referencing the Alabama abortion law that was signed by Governor Kay Ivey. Written by Terry Collins, a representative from Decatur. And I think, you know, when we talk about what a feminist approach to Christianity is, I think that's abortion is a great example because um, I think many Christians have been taught that to be Christian you must be pro-life and that there is only one way to be pro-life, which is to outlaw abortion. And I would say in the Christian circles that I move within, there is an alternate lens there, which is that there is a way to minimize abortion without outlawing it. And that that way would be to support women and children in our public policies and not make the experience of giving birth alone to be such a scary thing. And the way there are many ways we can do this. And yeah, the other half of the discussion about abortion is pro motherhood, supporting women, supporting single women, poor women. I mean, we already know that the, um, the effect is far greater on women of color in poor communities. So that I don't see how that's not it's much of a discussion as the abortion issue, but the abortion issue is such a, a flag that gets waved around by the church. Well, I have experienced in a lot of Christian circles that there is a lot of lip service given to the value of motherhood and not a lot of actual support given to um, the practice of motherhood especially for women who are mothering without a partner. And this is something that I do personally feel very strongly about because I've actually been a single mother twice in my life. The first time I was in grad school with a toddler and had no money and not a whole lot of resources. And that is a very, very difficult experience. And um, as someone who signed up for the task of motherhood, thinking that I would have, you know, a husband supporting me and raising this child and, you know, financing this child and then having that rug pulled out from under me, not once, but twice. Based on my own experiences, I feel that outlawing abortion is a counterproductive Christian agenda and that our time and energy would be better spent creating a world in which women did not pay such a high price to bear and raise children. So the second category of women, she categorizes them as God's troublemakers. And I, I, I personally like this category. These are the women who find a way to gain or regain their agency within the church and steep themselves in church tradition so that they are able to counteract 
some of this bad theology, this bad scriptural interpretation that that um, privileges the male experience. Um, the third category she talks about is probably the one that I would place myself in, which are the church hoppers, which is funny because I'm on my third, fourth church <laughs> in our community. And I think these are women on the margins who have just really gotten tired of struggling within a mainstream denomination to find a good spiritual home and a good fit. And um, she says that even though these women have not given up on Jesus, they have given up on the traditional church. They feel betrayed by the female pastors of the churches they attended, where they thought they would have a more satisfactory spiritual experience um, because the church was led by a woman, but unfortunately, on, only the gender of the pastor had changed and the experience of the worship service or the church community or the priorities of the church community had not changed simply by putting a woman in a leadership position. So you are a self-proclaimed church hopper, as many people seem to be. What are you looking for in a church? I think what I would love to see in the church community is the language that you spoke about, Lee, um, either a degendering of God or an equal gendering of God as male and female. Um, I would also like to see women in leadership positions in which they were given full agency. I would also like to see the feminine experience being put on the center of the stage. I would like to hear fewer sermons about abortion and more sermons about domestic violence, about rape and sexual assault. And I would like for those sermons to be preached based on the biblical text and the women in those biblical texts to whom those experiences happened. Yeah, I think that would be very powerful. It's interesting how the church just sweeps domestic violence and rape and abuse right on under the rug, right? That is an issue that I particularly struggle with within the church, because I do think that the work, the church has done wonderful work with social justice movements and have often been on the forefront of many social justice movements. But unfortunately, even in the most progressive of Christian circles, I often find that sexism is just considered to no longer be an issue. And that is very sad for me. I mean, I love to see the in our local community, a lot of work is being done by churches around racial reconciliation. And that is a wonderful thing. But unfortunately, when I participate in these events, what I found is that they are being led by a lot of men. And there there are not women other than as peripheral actors in these um, in these movements. And I can't reconcile that. What I would like to see is the church engaged in gender reconciliation and how they have aided and abetted in the abuse and oppression of women over centuries, from the witch burnings to more modern times. I mean, things are coming out constantly about abuse in the church that has been covered up. Oh, I'd be so excited if the church would take on reconciliation for the witch burnings, too. I mean, I We read a book about the witch burnings. Um, it was called The Witch Craze, and it was a feminist theology or a feminist approach to the witch burnings, which showed how enormous and widespread that was over hundreds of years across continents. And yet very little is known about it and very little is said about it by the church or even the secular world. And so, yeah, gender reconciliation is would be a great thing for the church to take on. And I think about the churches then that are still grappling over the idea of whether a woman can be an ordained minister. And in my mind, that is just so hard for me to believe. I mean, it's it's like those churches are still stuck in the dark ages. Well, Lee, that leads me in a different direction. As a Christian, my call is to follow Christ. And of course, we know that the church is a very large tent and that Individual Christians have very different ideas of who Christ was and what that meant. But when I say that I'm called to follow Christ, I mean that I am called to follow Jesus. And in my reading of the Bible, um, Jesus was a person who empowered women and supported them and included them. I think 
a lot of that mentality that you're speaking to in the church comes not out of what Jesus taught, but out of what Paul taught. And that is going down a whole nother um, pathway of discussion. But I think so many times the modern church privileges Paul's teachings over Jesus's. And that is very problematic for women. Yeah, everything else that's written in the Bible just seems to keep getting in the way of Jesus's message. And I just always think, well, as somebody on the outside looking in, like, why don't you just take Jesus's message, if that's the message that you so dearly love and want to follow, and get rid of everything else? In fact, he says, I bring you a new covenant. Why don't you take him at face value? I can't answer that, Lee. I, I, I don't understand it either. And I will say, this is probably a good point for me to point out, that while I am Christian, I am not seminary trained. I'm not a theologian. I am, I'm simply an interested amateur who has spent my life inside the church and outside of it, raised in a more conservative denomination and um, switching to a more progressive denomination for most of my adult life. And um So when I speak, I speak for myself and not for anyone else. And with the knowledge that a lot of what I say could be wrong or inaccurate. And um, it's just the culmination of my own experience and reading and research and, and, and really wrestling with Christianity and what it means and what it is to me and whether it's for me. Yeah, I get it. I think this is a good place for us to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk about practical ways that women can make changes in their congregation and in their personal lives. Well, I wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I, I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So, so I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the Black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also, I didn't know what feminist meant. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to the Fem South podcast. We are a local podcast, book club, and community dedicated to educating women, empowering women, and supporting women. We are produced locally in the deep south of Alabama in Fairhope. And today I'm with my good friend Shannon Fountain. And we're talking about Christian feminism. Okay, so we've talked about theory. Let's talk about some practical things that everyday women can do. What are some real practical things that women can do to create change? Does it begin with the individual? Does it begin with the church, the church community? What can women actually do on a daily basis to affect change? Well, I think it begins with questioning ourselves and questioning uh, what we believe and why we believe it. And um, I think one thing that was a, a very formative experience for me was being engaged in a small group of of Christian women. And we really explored outside of the box of the traditional, you know, Bible study paradigm. And we we explored together a lot of different um, thoughts and ideas in Christianity. And doing that work with a group of like-minded women was really pivotal for me. And I think that that's something that women in any church anywhere can do, like find a few women that are on your wavelength, find a good book or a podcast or a video series and listen to it, read it, explore it, dissect it. 
Another path that many women have gone down is to engage with the clergy at their church and have one-on-one discussions about what specific changes they would like to see in their faith community or in their worship services. Some women actually follow the path to ordination. This path can, can lead with you being ordained as a, um, as a clergy person. And I have known many women who much, much later in life became ordained as either priest or deacons. And I will say for myself that part of my fat path was discovering that there were different ways to be Christian than the community I was raised in. And um, finding a congregation and a denomination that was more in alignment with my, with my own beliefs. Yeah, and I just want to add to that that we do have pockets of women offering spiritual alternatives to church that are focused on the divine feminine, that are focused on mind-body connection, breathing, meditation, somatic practices that can be complementary to a faith-based Christian practice. They don't have to be at odds with one another. I mean, I see... God, spirit, energy, whatever you want to call it, living in all things at once, and we are not separate from it. And that awareness of connection is what can heal us, because ultimately it's the, it's the disconnect, it's the separation that is problematic and that destroys us. It's interesting you say that because one of my favorite Christian authors is Barbara Brown Taylor. She's written a variety of of great books. Um, One is called Learning to Walk in the Dark. Another is uh, Leaving Church, which is about her experience leaving the priesthood and becoming a professor for world religions at a local college. And uh, she, her most recent book, which I haven't read yet, is called Holy Envy. And it's about um, what we can learn from other faiths as Christians. Uh, and we read so much in this book about feminist liturgy and feminist ritual. That is something that I've sadly never gotten to experience. And I, that is what I would love to have maybe with a, a small group of like-minded Christian women is to get some of these liturgies or create our own and have our own our own experience that is is centered on a feminine experience. Amen to that. I agree. So we do need to wrap this up. Maybe just one quick final thought. I feel a little exposed and vulnerable and also kind of dumb because in many ways I'm discussing things that I don't even know that well or that I'm not that experienced with, but I do think, you know, I've I've had my own journey and I have learned something. And at the end of it all, even at the age of 44, I I still am aligned with the Christian faith for better or for worse. I just want to speak to that where I don't have any knowledge. I think as women, we need to check ourselves when we devalue our own intuition and our own ways of knowing above institutional knowledge. I do think it's important to have institutional knowledge. I'm not trying to discredit that, but I think especially this conversation is really interesting. It's like you can't have a conversation about God unless you have a theology degree, but God is the most intimate thing that you could possibly talk about and understand and feel intuitively. Isn't that ironic? I love that point, Lee, because um, a big part of my own faith journey has been moving from an external focus to an internal focus. And one of the things I read in this book is that uh, women's self-understanding is so rooted in the Christian narrative, um, especially for those of us who are raised in the church. And so it's been very important for me personally to rewrite those narratives, to go back and research and read for myself not just what some pastor told me or what I heard in a sermon, um, but to reread those narratives for myself and to reclaim them with a sense of my own agency has been um, a big part of my own faith journey. Yeah, I like that. I mean, 
For me, I, um, I've said many times that I am somebody who is not of the Christian faith, but I actually grew up in the church and we haven't really talked a lot about church trauma, but I've experienced quite a deal of church trauma. But walking away from the church and kind of leaving behind all of these discussions that we're having right now, which in my mind are very difficult. It's actually been quite difficult for me this month, kind of coming back into these conversations that I gladly left behind so long ago. Um, but I think that it's important to do this work. I think I'm hoping that we're reaching Christian women out there that, you know, are looking for some kind of support in their search for the divine feminine. I'm hoping that if if you haven't started looking for the divine feminine, this, this is inspiration to do so. Because when I left and I started to realize that the divine feminine was something that I could access that could be very real for me. That was huge for me, especially as a mother raising children. I mean, I needed the divine feminine so much when I was a mother, when my children were young. I still need the divine feminine as a mother now. But having something like that, that, that could provide me support and the rituals and the, um, the meditations that I've learned the the focus on something that's connected to everything, connected to the earth, connected to the trees, the water, the ecosystems. That has been really important for me and is in, is is set me on a different sort of path in my life, maybe, I don't know, a decade and a half ago. And that that has been huge for me. And I do want to say, Lee, that I so much appreciate you, despite having had those experiences and being willing to engage in this material and in this topic. And I know that you have you have done so in service to the FemSouth community because we are we are geographically based in an area that is largely Christian. And so I just want to voice my appreciation to you personally for um, for doing this with me. Thank you, Shannon. I appreciate that. And I feel the same towards you. I really appreciate you as well. Hopefully we're helping. Hopefully we're making a difference, huh? Christians can be feminist and feminists can be Christians. Absolutely. So you've been listening to FemSouth Podcast. We are a podcast, book club, and community dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women. We believe that through feminist theory, Through a comprehensive study of women's history and through current dialogue, women can transform and heal. We would love for you to subscribe to our newsletter at www.femsouth.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook and join our private Facebook book club group. You can also support us at Patreon. We have all kinds of tiers of support. So for as little as $1 a month, You can help us continue to support women in the South and provide quality content. And we would also really love for you to download and subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating. This is Lee, and you're listening to Fem South. Mm